Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Meredith. This episode features expert answers to your questions on PrEP in transgender individuals and racial and ethnic minority men who have sex with men. I'm joined by Dr. Raphael Landovitz, Professor of Medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles, and Dr. Hyman Scott, Assistant Clinical Professor at the University of California, San Francisco, for the full online educational program, including video roundtables, downloadable slides, and other podcasts in the series. Please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started. We've had a number of questions already coming in from our participants, so we'll do our best to get through as many as we can. And our first question here is from Raina, and how do you address the misconception that PrEP is only for gay men? Yeah, th- thanks. Thanks, Raina. It's a really important question. I think a, a lot of the early messaging was focused on gay men because epidemiologically, they're the most affected group in our country. But um, it's also had the unintended consequence of making other groups feel like PrEP is not for them. Happily now, increasing direct-to-consumer advertising, which to be honest, I'm not a fan of in general, is trying to be much more inclusive of additional populations and make it clear that it does work extremely well for heterosexual intercourse, that it does work very well for trans individuals. And we need to make sure that that is messaged in medical settings as well. And I think the number one thing we can do is by saying, I talk to all my sexually active patients about PrEP, and that includes people like you. You know, saying that to all patients, I think, and setting that context for the conversation is a surprise to a lot of people, and people wonder if that's true. Why haven't they heard about it already? And so it's helpful to have some of the data from the heterosexual PrEP trials on hand to be able to reflect that to people. Hyman, I don't know if you have additional strategies that you use, particularly um, with your non-MSM patients, if they feel surprised or have a, a notion that PrEP isn't for them. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's it's often a surprise. And we see this actually when we've made a diagnosis for a cisgender woman, for example, and they're often actually angry that someone hasn't spoken to them about this, like that there was a pill that they could take to help them prevent HIV and and no one talked to them about it. So we do have that conversation and I sort of address the the concept and sort of straight on and say, you know, this messaging and it's the conversation is is focused in other communities. You may not have heard about this doesn't mean that this is not an option for you. And so just sort of addressing it in that way. I think a lot of the misconception comes from the fact that there is a lot of networking and conversation within the community around PrEP. And so it is a very popular conversation that happens and it's just not happening. If you look at the original PrEP data, like right after approval, there are actually more cisgender women, predominantly in the South, that were on PrEP initially. So I think that was probably driven a lot by sort of OB-GYNs and other uh, reproductive health providers that were offering it to their cisgender female patients. And that there's no reason why we can't continue that and ensure that everyone has access. I agree. And when we did um, some demonstration research work with cisgender women in Southern California, that was the number one thing we heard repeatedly is why haven't we heard about it? Why aren't we part of this conversations? And we need we need to make sure our cisgender female patients are aware and are spreading this information within their own communities. Thanks for that answer. And there is another question from Fran- 
Francesco and another possible misconception about PrEP. So Francesco is an HIV case manager and a barrier that they've been running into is that clients think that maybe PrEP is not for them if partners are compliant on their ART and are undetectable. So I'm thinking U equals U. So in these circumstances, would PrEP still be warranted? Dr. Scott, if you want to start with this question. Yeah. Um, and we actually see this also with clients uh, who have partners who are on PrEP. And so we call that like PrEP by proxy. People feel like they're protected because their partners are safe. So I reinforced exactly this concept of U equals U. And that if their partners are undetectable, that we haven't seen onward transmission uh, from those partners. I will say that, you know, those are in clinical trials and people are tested all the time. There is some data that uh, there are time periods where people are not undetectable and that there still might be um, transmission. But if someone is undetectable, you know, the science supports that they are, um, that, you know, that's not transmissible. And so, you know, what I sort of frame it as, if you can take control of this prevention as well, if you're on PrEP. And so it is not either or, it's yes and. Yes, that is a strategy. And if you're interested in uh, serving, uh, covering your HIV prevention needs, PrEP is an option for you. Understanding that there might be reasons why someone doesn't want to be on PrEP, and that's also okay. And then it really comes into this shared decision-making. You know, my goal is a provider is to ensure that my patients are getting all the evidence-based care and prevention services, and that PrEP is a great option. However, it might not be something that they want, but I don't um, disagree with that approach of, you know, U equals U, um, but give them the option that, you know, you can do something that you control as well. Now, the, the only thing I would add to that is, um, and Francisco, um, I, I wonder if this is more what you were sort of hinting at is it's not that Hyman or I or the science does not 100% support U equals U. That is an incontrovertible fact. Someone who is undetectable and durably so is non-infectious sexually. But the million-dollar question, of course, is if someone thinks that they're in a monogamous relationship, monogamous is only monogamous until somebody figures out that it really wasn't monogamous, right? And we sort of jokingly call that monogamish, right? But what you don't want is for somebody to say, I'm not at risk because my partner, although they have HIV, they're on treatment and undetectable, and then deny that person PrEP when there might be, as Hyman says, guest stars in that relationship, right? And obviously, one partner's being undetectable has no impact on the transmissibility of another partner that we might not know more or the same things about. So if someone comes to me and says, I'm in a, a monogamous relationship with somebody who has HIV and they're on treatment, they're undetectable, and I still want to go on PrEP, I obviously make sure that they understand the principles of U equals U, but I will not deny prescribing PrEP for them because I assume that there's something that they're not comfortable telling me about that relationship. I, I do think it's important that they, you make sure they understand the principle of U equals U. Yeah, no, I, I do exactly the same thing, Rafi. I agree that if someone is in a zero different relationship, I give them all the uh, options for prevention that are available to them. So U equals U is an option, PrEP is an option, and then using shared decision-making, you know, support whatever decisions that they decide to make. But yes, you offer individuals all the options so that they can make that choice themselves. 
Thank you. And let's move on to a different barrier about getting regular labs. We have a question from Martin. Is there any advice on this and how to talk to patients to stress the importance of labs? So maybe this is a good time to talk about the CDC recommendations of lab monitoring. And then also with injectable CAB, it has been difficult since an HIV test is recommended required before every injection. So just talking about both of those options, what are some caveats and what are some strategies to overcome barriers in lab monitoring on PrEP? Sure, I'll 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 jump in on that one. Um, yeah. Um, so a couple of things, right? Um, there are three really big sort of groups of ideas around why monitoring with laboratories is really important. The first is to make sure that we know if there's prep failure, right? And prep failure is a rare thing with oral prep. It almost always happens in the context of when people haven't been able to adhere to it, but you absolutely want to know it um, as soon as uh, it happens. If there is a prep failure, because obviously people are going to, um, number one, change their behavior if they know they've acquired HIV to protect partners. And number two, you want to get them on fully suppressive ART as rapidly as possible. So that's one thing about the HIV testing. The second is it's really critical that regular, even asymptomatic sexually transmitted infection testing happen at these regular intervals. There's some really compelling modeling data from this guy, Sam Janess, uh, who is at the CDC, who's shown that if we find these STIs that are rampant in our communities these days early enough and we interrupt that secondary transmission cycle by treating even before people are symptomatic, we have the ability to really reduce HIV incidence, particularly in populations where these STIs right now are running out of control. So I think everyone knows we're in the middle of an STI pandemic, and so we need to be really vigilant about that. And then the third thing are, although these medications are generally extraordinarily safe, there are things that we need to pay attention to. And with, you know, TDF and even TAF-based PrEP, you need to pay attention to renal function and you need to make sure that you're keeping an eye on it. You know, um, for people who are not at increased risk, you know, the most recent CDC guidelines says you only need to look at that yearly, which I think is great. Those other tests still need to be done quarterly, so it doesn't actually save you visits. But that's one thing to keep in mind. People who are under sorry, over the age of 50 or starting with a creatinine clearance under 90 or have other risk factors for renal dysfunction, so hypertension, diabetes, a known family history of hypertension, you may want to follow that creatinine a little more closely. So other things to, to think about. Um, I don't know what to say about the barriers to coming in and having labs done where, you know, there are some opportunities that people are playing with to do all of that in home-based testing. Um, there are a number of companies that that do that, that prevent it from having to be in a medical context, but we still need the information, particularly the HIV testing and the STI information. And with cabotegravir, it's a little bit of a different, there's some additional considerations. You don't have to worry about the renal issues, um, so that's not an issue you need to not only do um, an antigen antibody test, but an HIV RNA test as part of the monitoring for cabotegravir breakthrough as well. Uh, the CDC guidelines do actually now updated say that um, RNA viral load testing should be used for tenofovir 
based prep monitoring also. Uh, this is an area in which the CDC and I disagree, and I have not changed my practice with oral tenofovir based prep to use HIV RNA screening. Uh, I use an antigen antibody laboratory based test for screening when somebody is on oral tenofovir based prep. I do send an RNA once before starting oral tenofovir based prep if somebody's had an exposure in the last four weeks or if they have any signs or symptoms that could be consistent with acute or HIV infection. But I don't in other contexts with oral tenofovir based prep. I do believe that it is important with cabotegravir-based PrEP to use RNA testing as part of treatment algorithms, particularly for MSM and trans women. Hyman, I don't know if you have thoughts about that or how to make the testing platforms easier or more acceptable. I agree. I think one thing that um, I've in practice noticed is that there is a, uh, oftentimes a very rigid uh, adherence from the provider perspective. If you don't get your labs done quarterly, then you don't get a refill. I think that strict implementation is problematic for for patients, we saw this during COVID that we could extend these out to six months or even nine months and that we saw um, more gaps in testing, but I think that you can do that safely. So, and I think standing orders is really helpful. So writing standing orders so your patients can just drop into their Quest or LabCorp and get the testing, like they don't have to call your office and get an order and all those things. So there are some um, implementation things that we can do to make it easier for our patients to adhere to the testing. And the viral load testing is, uh, you know, we don't do that for oral prep. We have not done that for oral prep uh, in the past. We do screen for acute HIV in our community because we have very high testing in San Francisco, for example. So we have an enriched um, population of acute HIV infection. Most people who have been chronically infected have been diagnosed already. And then, you know, I think viral load testing is important for cabotegravir. I think that there are some differences of opinion on whether or not I think it should still be offered even if viralos are not available. I think that ideally we should have it, but we also have seen in this a rollout of oral prep how low uptake has been because of all these variety of um, barriers. And so, you know, I think that there's some differing opinions about whether or not you should still offer cabotegravir. I personally think that it shouldn't be a complete uh, hard stop on offering injectable cabotegravir but understanding the delays that you're going to have in, in HIV diagnosis, potentially. We have a question here yeah. from Gabby, and they ask, how can patient navigators and clinic support staff combat stigmatizing language and gatekeeping practices among medical providers? So, Dr. Scott, can you share from your experience or perhaps what's in the literature on leveraging other clinic staff to help combat this? Yeah. So, you know, I think we use a lot of patient navigators uh, for PrEP uh, in our primary care clinics here in the health department, and they are their primary contact for uh, most of our patients who are on PrEP. They do the counseling, they do the discussions, um, and then oftentimes the providers in the clinics sort of ask them questions because they know that they have access to me, for example, and some of the other folks who focus on PrEP locally. And so I think that there are huge, important group of individuals to expand access. I think a patient navigator can navigate through all the PrEP initiation as well as follow-up. You know, a 25-year-old who is on PrEP, like they don't need to see a provider every three months or six months or even every year. You know, they just need to get their vaccines and, you know, check in with their provider. And the navigators can really serve that sort of extender, provider extender role. That'll be essential and I'd probably say necessary 
to expand PrEP to the individuals to whom we want to reach and are currently missing. Oftentimes, the patient navigators, to be frank, represent the communities that we're working with more so than providers do. So there is also some of that sort of uh, community awareness and engagement and comfort with the language um, that's being used. So I think it's an uh, essential resource for supporting these goals of helping people talk about PrEP, initiate PrEP, and continue on PrEP over time. Thank you. And I wanted to shift gears because we have a, a handful of questions about efficacy of PrEP in various populations. So the first one I wanted to ask, so uh, Dr. Lanovitz, a question from Neha. Is there any data on the efficacy of PrEP for transgender men specifically? So there is not efficacy data. Um, the one thing I will say is that we don't actually know if any or how many trans men may have been enrolled in some of the early PrEP trials, because unfortunately, the right questions to discern that were not asked. But no, I am not aware of any data specifically looking at the population of trans men, however, or trans masculine populations. I do think that it is not unreasonable to generalize the observation from some of the trials that were done in individuals born female who may still be having front hole sex regarding efficacy, understanding that particularly if they're on gender affirming hormones like testosterone, things like vaginal atrophy might contribute differently to risk. And if they're having rectal sex, there's no reason to think that rectal sex and PrEP efficacy would be different for a transmasculine population than for either a cis MSM population or a cis female population. I do want to say that it is an enormous missing piece to the data for all of these PrEP agents, but I do think you can still make reasonable judgments about use, even though we don't have the ideal data. Hyman, I don't know how you approach it. Yeah, I think I have a little bit stronger approach to that, Raphia. I think we need to ensure that trans masculine individuals have access to PrEP. And so we uh, describe what the studies did and didn't do and, and then offer it. And, you know, we give people the information and then ensure there's been a lot of I think recent discussions around how trans masculine individuals have been systematically excluded from most of these research studies, and that it sort of puts us in this position. And I think the the pharmacokinetic data that you sort of uh, reference and the and the potential exposure site data that we have from the clinical trials would support that prep uh, should be offered to trans masculine individuals. I think we uh, are learning that we need to. Uh, I, in my my reflection on the last ten years. And, and how we're still at such a low prep uptake is that uh, we have been a little too careful, I think, in how we've been thinking and, and uh, approaching prep. And I'm glad the CDC guidelines are a little bit more directive around um, and supportive of the idea that we just need to be offering this to individuals unless we have a very strong reason not to. We have a question from Robert. And Dr. Scott, I'm going to ask this question for you. Okay. So this is um, looking at on-demand prep 211. 
Can you tell us about the comparative efficacy of on-demand prep versus daily use? So if taken appropriately, is it as effective, less effective? Yeah, so um, we don't have necessarily like a comparative efficacy where we have had randomized individuals to take 211 or to take daily. Um, there are several studies that suggest that it has um, similar efficacy to oral prep. So at the CROI presentation where um, the 211 data were initially presented, you know, efficacy was shown in that study looking at uh, 211 versus uh, no prep or control, um, you know, efficacy was 90% or so. And then in the same presentation, there was a, another study out of the UK, which showed initial uh, initiating immediately versus delayed. And again, the efficacy was essentially the same. And then there have been large follow-up trials in France that have looked at sort of how you roll this out in 211 um, and individuals taking daily. And you know efficacy is extremely high. So we offer it in our clinic in an even-handed approach. 211 uh, for cisgender men. So individuals who are born male, uh, male at birth, signed male at birth, those are the individuals for whom we offer um, 211 and daily sort of even-handedly and sort of reflect that the efficacy is high. Um, we really don't get into the weeds around 91, 99, 95%. Um, it works really well if you take it and support that uh, the efficacy is high and that the decision about taking it is, is more about how well can you um, work this into your life? 211 is a little bit more complex to manage, um, takes a little bit more ability to plan or strategically delay sex so that you can take the two tablets before sex. And so that doesn't work for everyone's um, life. So that's sort of how we, we approach 211. The other point I would make is right in Prevenir, which is the open label extension to the hypergay study that was done in France, the HIV incidence in people who chose to do two-on-one was identical and extremely low compared to people who opted to daily oral TDF, FTC. So that's not a randomized controlled trial, but in real world use among MSM in France, they were equally effective at preventing HIV infection. And as Hyman said, it's probably not useful to get into the weeds with you know, 86 versus 91 versus 99% when the way it's used in the real world, they knocked HIV incidents down to extremely low levels identically. Thank you for answering that question. And we have a question from Emily and talking about persons who inject drugs. And based on that chart, Dr. Lanovitz, that you uh, presented with the limited data. So how do you approach PrEP in persons who inject drugs? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we often forget or neglect that people who also uh, have sex, right? And so just because they have injection drug use reported behavior, I choose to include in the menu of PrEP agents that I offer people anything that is appropriate based on their sexual risks. Because honestly, we don't have great data about any of the PrEP agents, the only data alone, not even TDF-FTC in people injected drugs in Thailand. And the data have a lot of caveats around them because of the amount of injection behavior that was happening at various points in the trial. And if you look carefully at those curves, there um, appears to be questionable benefit during the period where people were having the most injection 
drug use behavior and then a splitting of the curves, the active from the placebo after the injection drug behavior had largely gone away in the trial. So to me, it reinforces the reminder that people who inject drugs are similarly at risk from sexual transmission as people who don't inject drugs. And the injection drug behavior um, is just an additional layer of complexity, but it should not govern or make you say, I'm not going to prescribe a given agent because there aren't data specifically for that route in that population. Thank you. And I wanted to ask first from Gabby, she, she, they are asking about same-day prep start. Have either of you had experience with same-day prep start? And if so, how have you approached this differently for those that are cisgender men versus cisgender women? I'm happy to take that question. Um, so, no, we don't approach it differently. Uh, the main uh, need for same-day prep starts is to have a rapid HIV test result. Um, so, you know, that person doesn't have chronic HIV infection before you would start, say, TDF-FTC. Um, but we don't make a, a different a distinction between individuals born male and cisgender men versus cisgender women versus MSM. Another question from Miha in addressing provider stigma about PrEP. So can you talk about some of the common myths from other providers that they might hold from PrEP? And what are some strategies that you think have been effective to combat some of this provider stigma? Yeah. Um, so early on in PrEP use, um, we used to hear a lot of, I, I refuse to give you PrEP because it's going to increase your condomless sex behavior and cause more risk and put you at risk for more STIs. And what we know now is that that is nonsense, that people are having condomless sex regardless. PrEP is not causing condomless sex. And the ability to avert HIV infections is a compelling enough reason as to dwarf concerns about that reduction, potential reduction in condom use. But um, as I mentioned from Dr. Janessa's modeling study, and remember PrEP is not just here's a pill, go with God, right? This is part of a program of HIV prevention strategies. And the STI testing is part of that. You would be anticipated to reduce STI incidents if you are testing people quarterly who are having condomless sex and interrupt that infection cycle. So that's one myth. The other is we're going to cause a massively TDF-FTC resistant HIV epidemic and that, you know, when people fail it, everyone's going to be resistant and it's going to make HIV much harder to treat. There also early on in PrEP rollout were some models that suggested that that would be the case and happily that has not been borne out with oral PrEP. The majority of times, as I mentioned, that oral PrEP fails, it's in the context where people really aren't taking it at all or not with regularity. And um, the generation of resistance from that is also extremely rare. And happily, we now have really easy to take and tolerate treatment regimens that even in the worst case scenario of resistance to both components, of tenofovir-based oral PrEP, 
you likely will still be able to respond to the most commonly prescribed and well-tolerated single pill oral treatment regimens that we use in this country. Dr. Scott, did you have anything to add to this about other misconceptions for addressing provider hesitancy for prescribing PrEP? No, I think the only thing that I would say is that there's a lot of this driven by some of these other stigma around sex and what our patients will be doing when they start PrEP and that somehow that we have influence on that. There's actually great data that, you know, counseling doesn't work uh, for sexual um, health and STI prevention. Um, And among MSM, there's actually more STIs when you counsel individuals about sexual behavior. Um, in the setting of HIV testing. So, and I think as Rafi pointed out, like this works so well that the risk that you would increase, you might have increased by more STIs doesn't change the efficacy of, of PrEP. Um, and we haven't seen this massive failure. We have all this like very real world experience over more than a decade and rolling this out. Uh, and it works just so well. So I, I think that None of those concerns, and even if risk risk compensation occurs, it doesn't occur at a level that makes a difference in efficacy. None of those have been really borne out in our rollout over the last decade uh, of prep. Thank you. And so the USPSTF guidelines were just updated on prep last week. So I'd love to hear from both of you on what you think the impact of these new guidelines will have on PrEP care for our patients. So I'll start this time with you, Dr. Scott. So I'm excited that the U.S. Um, Preventive Service Task Force guidelines are now inclusive of the PrEP options that are available for a variety of reasons. It's required to be covered without cost sharing by health insurers. So hopefully this will address some of the massive difficulties that we've had nationally in getting injectable PrEP options to individuals through um, uh, private insurance. It's been really, a, really difficult, a nightmare in some scenarios. Um, so my hope is that this will translate into uh, more access through providers and through payers for um, all of the options for PrEP in the United States. And then I also think that it is a higher, a high profile sort of recommendation around PrEP and the PrEP options that Rafi had, had discussed earlier. So it really elevates that, you know, we do have multiple options for uh, HIV prevention um, through these biomedical strategies and that that they have a, a grade A recommendation um, for helping us achieve our HIV prevention goals in the U.S. And Dr. Landovitz, what about, what's your take on the guideline update? Yeah, I was similarly very excited that the grade A recommendation was updated. I I guess I'm a little concerned and cynical because I was hoping that the recommendations would specifically enunciate that the grade A recommendation applied equally to all three agents that we now have for PrEP, and it stopped short of actually doing that. So I fear, and I hope I'm wrong, that payers may try to find a loophole in those coverage requirements by saying that as long as they are providing a method of providing PrEP that addresses the grade A strategy rating that was given in this current update, that they don't have to cover the more expensive options. I hope I'm wrong, and I hope that is not how it gets interpreted. But that was my fear when the draft guidelines came out. 
And I tried to point that out to the group. Um, but if someone can see a place where each agent is specifically called out with a grade A recommendation and I missed it, please point it out to me because I would be most delighted. But I fear that it it might be used as a loophole. I agree that there are going to be strategies that payers use. I think even now, you know, there's not adherence to the recommendation for oral TDF FTC where payers are still requiring coverage by uh, patients who get those payments cleared when they complain. So I, I think that that will happen. I agree with you, Rafi. I think that there will likely need to be some either community pushback or lawsuits that become higher profile to ensure that the consequences of doing that are higher than the costs of covering it. And I think that really comes from our community activities and some of our legal advocates to, to make sure that that's done. What is your take on bundling PrEP and STI prevention with DoxyPEP? Like what are some strategies to do that and have you found it effective? Yeah, I'm a big fan. So we have offered DoxyPEP in our PrEP clinic and we now have over 2,000 people who are on DoxyPEP and we're seeing some pretty remarkable reductions in our STI positivity over a course of three months almost 90% reductions for chlamydia positivity and about 60% reductions for gonorrhea positivity. And we're doing lots of testing. So people want it. Uh, we offer it to individuals. There are side effects you have to talk to them about, of course, but you know, people are excited about this option. And so uh, we have been very forward in San Francisco. I think we were the first jet jurisdiction to offer it. State of California has also, also provided recommendations. Um, that is not the case across. But I do think it's an opportunity for us to transform STI prevention in the same way that PrEP has transformed HIV prevention, where we've been able to roll it out in large ways. So, so we offer it to um, all of our clients and patients um, who are interested in it. There are some targeting efforts that we do. I, I'm medical director of a sexual health clinic, so individuals, that's already a selected population, so we essentially offer it to everyone there. I think in a more general practice, you know, decisions about to whom to offer it um, will likely be a little different than with uh, oral prep, where we're saying that should be offered to everyone. But yes, they should be um, bundled. And I think everyone should know about it as an option. Right. And Dr. Lindovitz, anything to add to that? No, the only thing I would say is we're, we're having a similar experience in LA. We are offering it. California State now endorses it, as Hyman said, following on San Francisco being the first jurisdiction to endorse it. I would just remind people um, that we don't yet have data supporting efficacy for vaginal exposures. That I doesn't mean that it won't work. We just don't have the data yet. So particularly around vaginal exposure risk, um, there needs to be a lot of discussion about shared decision making there if it's worthwhile. Um, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying, you know, there the, we don't have the data to support it the way we do for MSM and trans women at this point. But um, I think it's a really powerful tool that we've been hoping for for a long time. Thank you very much to our faculty and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder to view the full, House Board and Prep, Overcoming Barriers to Prep Engagement in Principal Populations program on the Clinical Care Options website. Click on the link in the show notes. And please be sure to check back for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you and have a great day.